Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Let's face the fear or talk about it. Kristen Ulmer is a thought leader on fear and anxiety who draws from her tenure as the most fearless woman extreme skier in the world for 12 years. From intently studying Zen for 16 years and from facilitating tens of thousands of clients on flow and peak performance. She's also the author of The Art of Fear, Why Conquering Fear Won't Work and What to Do Instead. She's known for readily exchanging existing norms about what to do about fear and anxiety. Facilitating and speaking all over the world, some of her clients include Google, Citigroup, Olympic athletes, and the U.S. Air Force. Her revolutionary work has also been featured in such media as NPR, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes Magazine, USA Today, Tim Ferriss's Tribe of Mentors, and The Megyn Kelly Show, and many more. I did a ski retreat with Kristen probably about a decade ago, and I'm really interested in her work and her ideas on fear and how she implemented that real life and how that helped her as an extreme skier, what that looked like. So I'm excited to have her on the show today. Stay tuned. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Kristen is on the show today to share her story of being a world-class extreme skier and to teach us what she understands about facing and managing fear. Kristen, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm so happy to be here. Nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Let's start off with your story because that's what we do. How did you get started (laughs) in extreme skiing? What did that look like? Well, I will say that my story is that as sexy and exciting as being like the best in the world at a sport like big mountain extreme skiing for as long as I was, I think the bigger picture story of me and the the more interesting thing about me is what I learned from it and what that has led to me to become now. Like, I feel like I've been groomed by the universe to be a fear and anxiety expert for 33 years now. And it starts, of course, when I was a teenager and I was obsessed with skiing. You know, I was just skiing with friends and going on trips and just because I wanted to hang out with them and uh, they were competing in moguls. And so I thought, well, I'll compete in moguls too. And then next thing you know, without any goal to be on the U.S. ski team for moguls, I, that's where I found myself. I'm like, all of a sudden I'm wearing the jacket and I'm they're taking the picture and I'm like, oh my gosh, what the heck happened? And that was the beginning of my ski career, just being on the U.S. ski team. So very quickly, I realized I that wasn't my platform. At the same time, I was uh, jumping off cliffs for cameras and skiing for ski movies. And uh, I realized that that was more my style. So I just started pursuing being a professional big mountain extreme skier, which at the time, you know, that didn't exist. I was the first one. I actually just got inducted into the Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame two months ago. Congratulations. Um, Yeah, for being the first and for being the best for 12 years. So, How old were you when you were doing that? In my early 20s. 
Okay. Uh, I would say that I was considered the best by age 23. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, that was the same year that I was on the US ski team. I was only on the team for one year. So basically, I traveled all over the world. I was fully sponsored and I was considered the best woman big mountain extreme skier in the world for 12 years in a row. I mean, it's really hard to be the best in the world. It's something certainly as difficult as that. But did you have a blast? Was that so fun? Yes. I mean, with anything, there's the good and the bad. Like I got to travel all over the world on somebody else's dime, heli skiing, you know, yeah, and mostly hanging out with men, you know, and mm-hmm. they were all just really cute. And I just, it was really a fun, crazy, wild time. We pioneered all the routes in Alaska. It was just, it's a pretty wild sport and it attracts wild people. And it was, I mean, it was intense, but I also... The downside is I watched a lot of my friends die. I had over 50 near-death experiences. I've watched dozens and dozens of friends get crippled for, you know, it's very violent. You know, we call it extreme because the consequences of failure are either severe injury or death. And, uh, you know, the injury rate and the fatality rate in that sport is extremely high. What was your personal fear and anxiety level as you were doing this? Because absolutely, to ski at that level is incredible. And the stuff you were doing to ski at that level, like you say, jumping off cliffs, the, the tricks, the stuff you're doing and the conditions that you're doing it, that's really intense stuff. So did you feel fear when you were doing it? Well, I was considered fearless. The media called me fearless. I was also voted the most fearless woman athlete in North America, beating women in all sports disciplines, not just skiing. And I took up pretty much anything sort of dangerous sport you can get your hands on, ice climbing, paragliding, rock climbing, flying trapeze, kiteboarding. And I believed my own hype. I felt fearless. And in there lies the transition. Because not only is being fearless impossible, but it's also undesirable. And I learned the hard way this. So what happened after about 10 years, you know, what it was is I was really good at ignoring my fear. But it turns out underneath the surface of my relative reality, fear was with every single moment of every single day of my life. And it's that way with everyone, whether you're jumping off cliffs or not. Like I was motivated by fear of being invisible, fear of not being loved. I mean, that's what motivated me to jump off all these cliffs and ski these euphoria die descents. I actually was really addicted to feeling fear. Like people call people like me adrenaline addicts, but really what we are, because beneath the adrenaline is fear, is I was a fear addict. And when you love feeling fear, when you merge with it, when you become intimate with it, it doesn't feel like fear. It it feels like excitement. Like neurochemically, fear and excitement are exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I was an excitement addict. I was chasing it. It made me feel alive. And it turns out fear was like the best part of the whole experience. It's the thing that took me into those higher states of flow zone, consciousness, like extreme athletes are notorious for being able to get into the zone, maybe because you have to or else you're going to die. And the fear is the very thing that takes you there. We get that wrong. Like fear actually is one of the most amazing experiences we get to have here on planet Earth. But I had a paradox going on. I both had a very healthy, intimate relationship with fear, and it was motivating me and taking me into those higher states, but I also repressed it to the extreme. I ignored it. And the part of me that ignored it, and in my attempts to be, quote, fearless, next thing you know, I had a whole host of emotional problems that 
made me want to quit, made me, I actually did quit. I had PTSD, which is when you go through a traumatic experience and, you know, strong emotions show up, you don't know how to deal with them, you push them down. Well, they wound up running your life from, I call it the basement. Mm -hmm. I also became a really rigid, stoic, arrogant person to be, quote, fearless. I didn't like who I was. And in this violent sport, you can't be rigid. You have to be more slinky-like. So next thing you know, I started getting injured again and again. We see this a lot with like ski racers. They hit their 30s and they have an injury every single year. And we think, oh, it's because they're getting older. No, it's because they're ignoring fear. And that changes who you are. That changes how you walk, how you talk, how you carry yourself. And it makes you too rigid and stoic for a sport where you need to be more malleable. Um, and then I also became really burnt out because I was dealing with a tremendous amount of fear and it was taxing all my resources to block out, ignore, not deal with my fear in an honest way. Like 99% of my energy was spent being, quote, fearless. And I didn't have much left over and I was just exhausted and burnt out and I had to quit. And so, the part of me that was intimate with fear is the part of me that then became a world-class athlete. The part of me that resisted the fear or tried to be, quote, fearless, I'm lucky to be alive, not only that, is the part of me that just disintegrated me from the inside out. So I loved what you said at the beginning where you said the things that I went through helped prepare me for what I could do later on. And I absolutely believe this because I see that in my own life. And I think so many times, whatever it is we're going through, whether it's a trial or in this case, this experience of being an extreme skier, that we're being prepared. We're gaining understanding and insight about something that helps us prepare us for the person we need to be moving forward. So how did that help you become that fear and anxiety expert? How did you transition from this extreme skier into helping other people learn how to handle their fear? Well, I will say that if there's somebody out there that calls themselves an anxiety expert, there are not many people that will call themselves a fear expert, mostly because I think they believe that they have to be A, fearless, and B, teach people how to be fearless. And so, I, I mean, I found like one other person in the world, right? That, but there are a lot of anxiety experts and anxiety is fear. Specifically, it's recirculating fear. So just let me preface this by saying that what I teach about what to do about fear and anxiety is unlike anything else out there. And I believe that my unique background as an athlete set me up on course to being able to put the pieces of the puzzle together to figure out why we have such severe anxiety problems in our culture and why what we're actually being taught to do about it is either exacerbating or indirectly causing the problem. And so I'm like an anomaly here, you know, that I have this unique step-by-step -step education real life education, rather than parroting the same stuff that's out there, like, oh, you want to be fearless, you need to do breathing exercises, let it go, meditation apps, like positive visualization, all that. I'm saying that stuff actually is hurting us. It's not helping. It, it seems to help in the short term, but it's actually causing a worse problem. So then let me back up and answer your question, having set that precedence. What happened is I had to quit. I just, I couldn't take anymore. I actually started to hate skiing and hate is a very strong word. And I couldn't understand because it had treated me so well. The ski industry was so complimentary. You know, I was 
I just, I was desperate to get out of this sport and I set out to figure out what had gone wrong. So I started these mindset only ski camps because I wanted to attend them and I hired a Zen master to facilitate them. I started with a sports psychologist, but I found the sports psychologist to be mostly worthless. You know, they're learning about this stuff in college. They're not athletes. Like he started talking. I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? Right? Like this was a renowned sports psychologist too. Then I got the Zen master involved and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Like this guy was my teacher. So I started studying voraciously with him for the next 15 years. And very quickly, I learned exactly what had gone wrong for me, which is that I had been my ignoring of the fear in order to be, quote, fearless had caused all my problems. My attempts to believe my own hype or be fearless was the problem. And uh, the second I started to turn that relationship around, and my goal was not to be fearless anymore, but actually to make friends with my fear, have an intimate relationship with my fear, not as a paradox, but as a complete, you know, like have that relationship be only about that intimacy, my problem started to resolve. So how does Um, someone do that? How does someone become friends with their fear? Well, let's get to that. Let me just finish my story and then I'll, I'll tell you. It wasn't until years later that I learned what to do instead. So this is what not to do first. So let's preface that first. And then I started working with a lot of athletes and I started teaching what I was learning about myself with fear with, to them. Their performance issues went away. Their insomnia went away. Their anxiety issues went away. I started then working with people that were not athletes that were dealing with some serious emotional issues, PTSD, depression, panic attacks. And I brokered a healthy, considerate relationship with their fear. And their issues started to resolve as well. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so interesting. I can't believe that this is not more known and talked about. But look at it this way. We have, according to Zen tradition, 10,000 different states of mood or being, whatever you want to call it. And the analogy is 5,000 of them are considered good and 5,000 of them are considered bad. So imagine you have a house full of children and half your children you've named love, joy, gratitude. And the other half you're, you've named like fear, anger, sadness. Despite your best intention, would you be able to treat them all the same way? No. And what we tend to do is nurture and love and show off to the world these wonderful children, the the love, like, you know, we have gratitude practice, we have forgiveness practice, we choose love over fear, like all these things that we do to nurture these wonderful children. And what do we do with these bad children, these negative children? Well, we resist them. And resistance is specifically taught in our culture by doctors, by psychologists, by self-help gurus. And resistance comes in many forms you know, we ignore them like I did, or we try to rationalize them away. We get into our heads dealing with our emotions intellectually rather than emotionally. We try to breathe them away. We try to replace them with the positive spiritual bypassing, like anything we can do to get rid of them, get rid of them, get rid of them. And win the war against them, we try to conquer and overcome them. We lock them in the basement, we throw away the key. So, what happens down there in the basement? And, and what, I mean, let me ask you, Laura Lee, what would you do if you were a child and you were locked in the basement and nobody loved you and you're down there with no food, no love, no water, no sunshine? How would you feel and how would you react? I don't know how much you could do if you were locked down there. It sounds like you're being tortured. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, obviously, you're either going to wither away and die or you're going to fight to get out. Now, The thing is, though, these are emotions. 
they will not be denied and they cannot wither away and die. We, we get that wrong. We think that they will, if we do this, you know, lock them in the basement. And, you know, the thing is, they're your children. Like, they're part of your life. Have you ever read the book, Feelings Buried Alive Never Die? No, that sounds, I love the title. <laughs> it's actually fascinating. And I read it probably 15 years ago, and it was really, really crucial to my own growth. But it's that same thing that once those feelings are buried, they start manifesting themselves in physical ailments and other issues that it creates within us if we bury them. I want to know what you teach then. And yeah. I know you're getting to it, but if you don't believe that any of these other things work, what is it that you teach? So you can accept them, accept your emotions, but does accepting them make it so that you don't stay small? Does accepting them make it so that you can get past the spaces of fear? Or do you just accept that you're fearful and live in that space? Well, let me first of all say they do work. All these methods that are taught are statistically proven to work. And look at it like, back to the analogy of children. I love to personify fear and other negative emotions. You know, they're children or roommates or maybe a spouse. So they have something to say and you rush through them, you resist them, you try to get rid of them, you, you know, make yourself so busy, you don't have to deal with them, you drink alcohol, you smoke pot, you take pills, like whatever it takes to get rid of them, you're going to get rid of them. Well, they don't go away. You know, they just get temporarily pushed away. Mm -hmm. And we all know with children that are being ignored, well, they just come back later screaming louder. You know, now they're upset. And then after 10 years of this, they now have a kind of issues, like they have psychological issues, like they're abused. And, and so now they're hysterical screaming. They're either showing up as exaggerated versions of themselves in the form of an anxiety disorder or panic attacks or hijacking your mind in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep to make themselves known then because that's the only time you'll listen, showing up as an insomnia, monkey mind, or they show up redirected in other ways that don't even seem like fear, um, such as depression or anger. Like if a kid has a really scary home life, he doesn't want to deal with his fear. It feels weak. He has to feel something. So that fear will show up as anger instead, which feels more powerful to him. So basically, you're going to have a lot of emotional issues if you lock these children in the basement. Okay. So what do you do instead? All right. So what do you do instead? You talked about acceptance. So that's a step in the right direction. And I think that most progressive teachers are teaching some form of acceptance. And so I actually break it down into four classic levels of how people deal with their fear and other so-called negative emotions. The first is resist. And because it's so prevalent in our culture, we either all do it at some point or 99% of us do it all the time and it's supported. And these efforts, you know, the letting go, the breathing exercises, the positive affirmations, even cognitive behavioral therapy, all of that works great to temporarily make you feel better. Child goes away, shuts the hell up, right? So you think, okay, I'm on the right path. But you have to keep this up. You have to now meditate four or five times a day. You have to do breathing exercises all the time. And it just gets uh, builds up to a bigger and bigger problem. And the cognitive behavioral therapy, then you then retrain your brain to be desensitized to the now screaming child which works, right? It works, but it seems excessive. 
So that's the first level. The second level is acceptance. A lot of progressive teachers, like I said, are teaching this. Well, you got to accept them. They're normal and natural. Life involves fear, sadness, anger, all of that. But what tends to happen is there's a comma after that. And now let's let them go. Now let's choose something more positive over these so-called horrible emotions. And mind you, I get it. Like the only version that we know of these emotions are at this point, the, the kind of disjointed, crazy, irrational ones that are screaming for attention from the basement. You know, anger throws punches and screams at strangers. You know, sadness is like depression, you know, or like overly sobbing in inappropriate situations. Fear has shown up as like crippling, you know, like preventing you from doing the things that you want to do. Like those are the versions of these emotions that we are now aware of because of the way we've been treating them for so long. Acceptance is a step in the right direction, but we're not there yet. And uh, I want you to see again, like this as being a child. If I accept the child, you know, that's, it doesn't honor them. Like I accept that there's nothing I can do about him. It is what it is. I hate him, but I can't get rid of him. So whatever, like, you know, that doesn't make you feel very good when you hear that about yourself. So third level is you learn how to embrace your emotions very counterintuitive, turning towards them, not away from them, and actually giving them a hug, like it's a physical experience, learning how to feel them. This is where we stop dealing with our emotions intellectually, and we actually start dealing with them emotionally, taking us into our bodies, connecting ourselves to kind of the core of what makes us us. You know, fear, anger, and sadness are a huge part of the human experience. So, by embracing these emotions, you actually make friends with yourself at your core and you make friends with the nature of life itself. But then there's the fourth level, which is where you have an intimate relationship with these emotions. And can you see how far we've gone from mere acceptance to embracing to have an intimate? And now imagine if you were that child, you know, you've been locked in the basement, now we accept you, then we embrace you, and then we have an intimate relationship with you and we go about our lives just honoring you and welcoming you and being curious about what you have to offer. Can you see that that child becomes mature and stops being irrational and crazy, but actually winds up being a benefit to our lives, like an asset and an ally helping us be magnificent out there? Sure. Can you give me an example? Choose a specific fear, maybe something from your own life. What does it look like to be intimate with that fear? Just a a real life thing. I was, uh, right when my book came out, I'm a facilitator. I don't do lectures. Mm -hmm. Um, I show people this rather than tell them. And uh, I was asked to do the first of many speeches right after my book came out. And and I was like right off the bat in front of a huge audience of really smart people that can make a huge difference in my career. And I had to give a 75-minute keynote. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so far out of my comfort zone. And I said yes, because fear is kind of my thing. Like mm-hmm. by saying yes, I was willing to accept a lot of fear in my life. we we'll start there. But I was, I mean, it was a big step for me. And uh, first of many, I've now done tons. But so I had a month to prepare. And the fear, we think fear of failure is a holdback. It's actually a motivator. You know, if you have a resistance to your fear of failure, it's the resistance to the fear that keeps your butt on the couch not the fear itself. We get that wrong. And it's that the awful feeling is not the fear. The awful feeling is the resistance to fear. Like, I don't want to feel this. Like somebody doing trapeze class, I owned a trapeze school. You know, it's the resistance. I don't want to feel fear that keeps them not doing the trapeze class. The fear doesn't stop them. The fear is there to make them sharp and focused. 
So because I was intimate with my fear, the fear got my butt off the couch and made sure that I would prepare, you know, like fear of failure, made sure that I did my homework and prepared so as not to fail, right? Right. So it helped me prepare. Okay. And then, of course, I'm about to give the speech and I'm about to go out. It's 10 minutes before it. And I am feeling a tremendous amount of fear. You know, I'm terrified. And there were two choices. I could either go behind and say, I, the stage and say, I got this. I'm totally ready. I've, you know, and try to rationalize the way the fear, which we are typically taught to do. But I didn't do that because that would have worked. I would have felt better, but it wouldn't have been me having an honest relationship with my fear. And it would have, it was repression and that fear would come back later in the, some other form. I'd kick the cat or yell at my husband or I don't know. I don't kick cats. But anyway, instead, this is what I did. I first acknowledge that it's normal and natural to feel fear. Of course, I feel it. I'm about to give a speech, right? It's not a sign of personal weakness. It's not a character flaw. We all feel it, especially if we're going to do big things with our life. Second step, I then did a body scan. So fear is in our bodies. It's a feeling in our bodies. If it's in your head, that's a clear sign you've been repressing it and it's showing up in your thoughts. So I did a body scan. What did I feel? I felt nervous. It was in my chest. And... Uh, it was a level 10 out of 10. And there's an equation that I have in my book, suffering equals discomfort times resistance. So my discomfort was a level 10. And I found it in my body. And nervousness is another name for fear. Then I did a second body scan. And I noticed, what is my reaction to that fear? Well, I was in resistance to it. I'm like, oh, for crying out loud, I wrote a book about this, right? My resistance was also a level 10. And it was showing up as... I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. I don't want to feel this. This is too much fear. I don't want to do this. I just wish I were at home with my cats and my husband and watching a movie. Like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here, right? So 10 times 10, that's a whole lot of suffering. So first, I spend some time, and I always encourage my clients to have a resistance practice. Like, the resistance is the issue with fear, not the fear itself. So spend some time getting to know your resistance. Everybody is different. Some people go shopping you know, excessively. Some people eat food as a way to not deal with their fear, make yourself really busy, all these things we do to not deal with our fear. And uh, so I spent some time just feeling my resistance. And see, resistance is like a child too. I gave some quality time and attention to that child without trying to get rid of it. You know, this is not about replacing it or getting rid of the resistance. You don't want to resist your resistance either, right? And much like when you turn towards a child and give them your undivided love and attention, they calm right down. So after about a minute, my resistance calmed right down to level one. And then I turned my attention to my fear. And what to do instead is summarized in a very simple practice where you learn how to feel your fear. Like just feel it. Like a rider feels a horse or where you feel like an ice cube on your skin or just feel it, just have an intimate moment. Now, this is not about focusing on it with your brain. This is a thought-free experience where you just spend some quality time with it. And then that child also ran out of things to say, calm right down to a level one. This took me two minutes to do. And then I went from 10 times 10 to one times one, a lot less suffering, without any kind of repression. And then I went on stage and I, I killed it. Thank like, you for that example. I have a speech coming up in two weeks and I, the things you were saying, <laughs> I'm relating with all of them. I'm thinking, I'm going to try that. It's a great idea. If people want to work with you, where can they find you? 
I'm at kristenolmer.com and I have a lot of courses and events and support information to guide people. I mean, basically, if what you're doing regarding negative emotions isn't working, I found that this works great. And it's counterintuitive, but I can walk you step by step on exactly how to transition from a resistant approach to your negative emotions to an embracing approach so that they don't have to scream and yell anymore and uh, some emotional issues can resolve. Awesome. Any final words of advice before we close up? I will say that I understand why it's so popular to rush through discomfort and get to a more positive place. But if you are willing to go into the darkness, you'll find that it's not a dark place after all. That, you know, fear is actually the very thing that's here to help us be magnificent. You know, and a willingness to feel fear is a willingness to step out of your comfort zone where learning and growing exists. So I would say that having a healthy, considerate relationship with your fear is the most important personal work that you can ever do if you want to live to your greatest potential. And the same goes with anger. You know, you can tap into anger, you tap into confidence, righting a wrong. If you tap into sadness, it breaks open your heart to love and compassion for yourself and others. So if you have issues with these emotions, it has to do with resistance. You can turn it around by having an intimate relationship with them. Things change and they change fast. It's such a great angle and also so healthy to have that space of acceptance rather than fighting off the way of being human, but to accept and love and and find the value in those things. So thank you very much for sharing. One thing though, acceptance is not what I teach. Acceptance is not there. It's too passive. We want to go for embracing and intimacy, which is way beyond that. Like it. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much. All right. do you fear? And what do you do when you fear something? Do you run? Do you hide? Do you face it? Do you run toward it? Do you do as Kristen talks about where you take those steps to become intimate with it? These are some interesting ideas and learning to live and have a healthy relationship with fear is something that we talk about. So you can create your best life story and fear is something that's not going away for any of us. It's part of the human experience. Your challenge this week is to consider something that you fear, that you're either feeling resistant to or that you're afraid of. And try this technique of acceptance and intimacy and the body scan she was talking about and see what that does for you. Kristen's information will be in the show notes on the website, loveyourstorypodcast.com, if you'd like to get in touch with her or follow what she does. And don't forget that all of the 150 plus episodes that we've done on the Love Your Story podcast are there and easy to share. Just copy the link. You can buy your Love Your Story t-shirt or there's links to my book, Life, Living Intentional and Fearless Every Day. And you can also be one of these people that's jumping on and creating groups around the book. So you can get your family started, your book club started in this challenge of creating more connection and possibility in your life by using these 21 challenges that are in the book. So just some fun ideas for you to run with this week. And we'll see you next week. Share the love.